It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. Unfortunately, it's still mask season, folks. And if you're like me, the masks you've collected and or cobbled together over the last three months are starting to see a little wear and a lot of funk. And not the good kind of funk. So in addition to manufacturing proper PPE for health workers, Outdoor Research presents the Essential Face Mask Kit. It includes high-efficiency filters made in the USA, a fully customizable fit, it's washable and durable, and built to last. And the polyester fabric outperforms cotton in an abrasion test and is fast to dry and wick moisture. So though nobody wants to wear a mask, we gotta. And why not pull one on that fits and looks better and is far more effective than that napkin you duct tape to your mustache? Or am I the only one who tried that? Anyway, check out the Essential Face Mask Kit at OutdoorResearch.com. And while you're there, have a look at the summer sale happening now, if now is July 2020, and maybe pick up something less essential, but a lot more fun. In 2006, the news of Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff's disappearance in Western China pierced through the climbing media bubble. It became a national news event that was broadcast nightly on stations around the country. There was almost a month of coverage about their disappearance, until at last, Fowler's body was found, and it was presumed that both had died in an avalanche. Charlie Fowler was a climbing legend, who first made a name for himself by soloing the DNB on Middle Cathedral Rock in Yosemite in 1977. He then went on to free solo the Diamond of Long's Peak in Colorado. But his grander contributions to the sport spanned the Utah desert tower scene, as well as in the big mountains of Europe, Patagonia, and the Himalaya. Chris Boscoff was more of an 8,000-meter climber, and far less of a household name than her partner Charlie, at least in core climbing circles. As is often the case when a team of climbers die in the big mountains, it seems as if more attention gets paid to the more famous and accomplished climber of the team. No judgment there, just an observation. In this imbalance, however, lies an opportunity for journalists to tell stories that might otherwise go untold. And that's precisely what has happened with our guest today, Joanna Garten. Joanna has just released a new book called Edge of the Map, The Mountain Life of Christine Boscoff. What's interesting about this book is not only the timing of its release, almost 14 years after Chris and Charlie's deaths, but also that Joanna is not a climber. When perceptive, articulate, and talented people like Joanna peer into our niche world with their outsider perspective, there's inevitably wisdom that we on the inside will find useful. This is Andrew Bishrot. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Kalous, and you're listening to The Runout. Unpacking this outsider wisdom, as well as telling stories about an unsung hero's life, is the nature of our conversation today with Joanna. Again, her book is Edge of the Map, The Mountain Life of Christine Boscoff, which is available wherever books are sold, ebook and audiobook formats as well. So without further ado, our conversation with Joanna Garten. So Andrew, as a Coloradoan now, you're probably fairly aware of who Charlie Fowler is, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, a, a classic 
dirt baggy, like OG dirt bag climber. But I have a, a, a kind of a funny story about Charlie actually, because climbing down in, in Indian Creek in the, in the Southwest there, uh, where Charlie hung out, you know, over in, uh, Norwood and near Natarita and those places, uh, I ran into Charlie a few times, but one time in particular, I was climbing this route called Sweden Ringle uh, in Indian Creek, which is kind of a classic 12A sort of hard climb. But it has one of these things that happens in the creek where the first ascension is just put it up to a dwindling crack until you couldn't climb anymore. And that's where the anchors are. So with those types of routes, you get to the anchor and that's kind of the crux is sort of getting your rope into the anchor at the last last minute and charlie was down there when i was trying to onsite it and god this was 20 years ago at least and i just ha- he had this very distinct voice uh he's from west virginia i believe it wasn't it didn't really have a drawl in it so much but it was really up in his up in his nose and he had this awesome cackle like laugh that just burst out of him all the time because he was that kind of dude and i just remember like sitting there staring at the chains trying to pull rope and not fall out of these terrible finger locks while he just like cackled away down at the base, like in this incredibly like piercing cackle. And I finally did just pitch off. I failed. I, I totally took this huge whipper and, and the whole time Charlie just laughed and laughed and laughed. And, and, but it wasn't like a laugh, like, Hey man, you suck. Like I'm laughing at you. It was more like, I know what you're going through, buddy. And I know what this is like up there. And, uh, it was great. And it, it's like a totally fond, wonderful memory that I have of, of Charlie Fowler. And, and obviously hit me, even though I wasn't friends with him when he passed away, um, a decade and a half ago. And, uh, that's part of what we're talking about today. So Andrew, why don't you introduce our guest? Yes, uh, that was a great story, Chris. And um, I, I had a similar experience recently climbing with uh, that kind of cackle laugh um, resulting in a hilarious fall. Um, and so I think that's like kind of an everlasting, precious moment in the climbing experience. Um, but yeah, today we're here with uh, Johanna Garten, who's written a new book called Edge of the Map, The Mountain Life of Christine Boscoff. And uh, it's so thanks for being here, Johanna. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So this book is um, a tribute to uh, Charlie Fowler as well as Christine Boscoff. Uh, Really, it's about Christine Boscoff because she was the these two climbers disappeared in China in 2006. And, you know, Charlie being the he was sort of the more famous, widely acclaimed climber uh, for, you know, doing the first free solo of the diamond and um, some other free solos that really gave him that notoriety as, as a, as a legend in the climbing space. But Christine was less well-known. And um, so, you know, all these years later, you've, you've come out with this new book about a person who was part of a a very, um, it was like big national news at the time uh, when, when these two climbers went missing in China and uh, so, uh, yeah, it, we'd love to know just where did you get the inspiration to write about this subject and, uh, and and why now? And why now? Right. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Well, the backstory is is pretty fascinating. So I can dive into that for you a little bit. And thank you again for having me. And I love the Charlie story. That's a Charlie story that I have not heard. And I love hearing new ones. So I'm just smiling big there's right a, now. So. I'm, I'm sure there's a lifetime of new Charlie Fowler stories. <laughs> yes, that's, for that's sure. part of who he was. Was Yeah. Um, there wasn't a climbing day, it seemed, that went by that didn't have a story that went with it. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. 
So um, let's see where to start. So I am from a town called Appleton, Wisconsin. And the reason I uh, ultimately ended up with this book and this story in my lap is because I'm from the same hometown as Chris Boscoff. She also was from Appleton, Wisconsin. She was about three years older than me. And uh, we actually went to the same high school. We never crossed paths. We never met. Uh, We were both kind of doing our own thing. And it was a high school of 2000 kids and we just never met. So and she was not climbing at that time. And nor was I. I'm still not a climber. So we just graduated from Appleton three years apart and we went our separate ways. We both ended up in Colorado. I eventually ended up here in Denver with family and she ended up in sort of the Telluride Norwood area with Charlie. And she and Charlie went missing in December 2006. And a little article was posted in our hometown newspaper about her disappearance. And she was just incredibly humble. Her accomplishments were not well known. Sort of the headline from her professional career is that she was the only American woman to have summited six of the world's 8,000 meter peaks. She accomplished that in the year 2000. And actually, that's a record that still stands, which is truly remarkable. Uh, And so at the time she um, disappeared with Charlie, she had this enormous um, resume, climbing resume. And there was an article in the paper about Chris going missing. And my mother read it and was just blown away because she had never heard of Chris. Chris was very under the radar, didn't really talk a lot about her accomplishments. And my mother reached out to me and said, do you know this woman named Chris Boscoff? She's gone missing in Western China. And I hadn't heard of her either. And so the two of us got very intrigued with Chris's story. And eventually both Chris and Charlie's bodies were found. And by the time Chris's body was recovered, my mother was convinced, having dug into her story for many months and befriended Chris's mom, who lived just a few miles away. My mom was convinced that this was the makings of a very good book. So my mother, who was a journalist, worked on the book for about 10 years and eventually uh, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and was unable to work further on the book. And at that point, I offered to help her finish it. I had just published my first book in 2015. And uh, she and I worked together on it for a little while. And eventually I finished it. That's just an amazing story. Um, And I just love that, uh, that connection. Because now... I assume your mother is not had no context of uh, climbing or wasn't a climber herself, and 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 you as well, I believe. Or what? What is your climbing background, if any? My climbing background is zero. <laughs> I am an endurance athlete. I'm a marathoner, so I understand endurance sports, mm-hmm. but I'm not a climber nor a mountaineer. I mean, I've climbed in the Himalaya a few times and been up at altitude a bunch. But I wouldn't say I'm a high altitude mountaineer nor a climber, and my mother definitely not. <laughs> but uh, her Chris's story was just so intriguing, and the lifestyle, as you both know, and your listeners know, the lifestyle, mountaineering lifestyle, and the climber lifestyle is just so fascinating that it's easy to just kind of fall into that world. And I think that's what sparked her interest, and certainly mine. Well, the Appleton. Uh, part of it is interesting to me. First of all, I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, and I have all my family, my extended family still lives up there. My parents, I mostly grew up in Illinois, but my parents have retired back to North of Green Bay. So I'm very familiar with where you're talking about. And uh, especially in the 2000s, but even now, you know, climbing is just not something that 
many people in that zone really know mm-hmm. too much about. And um, it, it sounds like including yourself, but you know, the 8,000 meter thing and the Everest thing, you know, that's really this like kind of, you know, connection a lot of people make to climbing and, and, uh, gets a lot of non-climbers sort of interested in it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we don't have people who don't climb on the show very often, maybe ever, I don't know yet, but, um, as you started delving into this and, and your mom did as well, what were some of the things that kind of like really, either were surprises about this world that you got into or, um, you know, intriguing points of interest as you really got into the nitty gritty of, you know, this, uh, Nepalese and Pakistan high altitude climbing. Mm -hmm. Well, I came to the project with a very similar question, uh, that most other, I think, non-climbers, non-mountaineers have, which is what is it about this sport that draws people to it when it's so dangerous? You know, that's kind of the question that's always asked that can never really be answered and is answered in different ways. And you kind of go around and around in circles. And so I was very intrigued by that and wanted to really dive in and understand that. And I definitely now do understand that and love talking about that part with people. Because I think one thing I found through researching was how judgmental people can be about the sport if they're not in it. They just don't really get it. And so the way that I've started to try to explain it to non-climbers and um, and non-mountaineers, and I think the way that hopefully comes across in my book, is just that it's a passion, which is the equivalent of a passion that any person has about any other thing that might not be so quite so dangerous. You know, people are passionate about parenting or having children or spirituality or painting or fostering animals. So that is, you know, everybody should be so lucky in life to have their thing and their passion, the thing that drives them. And so for mountaineers and climbers, this is it. And I think because the sport is so dangerous or can be, has the potential to be dangerous, I think people feel entitled to be a little judgy about that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that became incredibly irritating to me over time, spending so much time with all of you. Uh, And so I think that kind of transformation in my thought and that desire to convey that through the narrative was something that was intriguing and surprising and delightful for me, really. Yeah, I mean, a big part of this, the preface that that kind of went into uh, not just the book, but but Chris's life was um, was the connection to Alison Hargreaves. And, um, you know, and that even if I remember that the big controversy at that time um, around her climbing and then and then her eventual uh, death on K2 is that she had young kids. Right. And so the you know, the judgmentalness, you know, or uh, if that's a word, is that a word? Did I just make that word up? Anyway, that's but, a word. You know, okay, well, here it is now. The right now. <laughs> lexicon includes judgmentalness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it was across the the both cultures from non climbers to climbers. There was some big problem around that, which you know fed into this narrative that women couldn't do what uh, what the men were doing in in the mountains. And and part of your narrative and and part of what what uh, Chris did was was break a lot of those stereotypes. Uh, would you agree with that? Right. Yes, I think so. I think so. That event, Allison's death, is recounted in the book because Chris was sort of peripherally part of that mm-hmm. experience. And I think it really opened her eyes to what it was to be a woman in this sport that was so dominated by men and actually still is, if we're mm-hmm, talking about certainly. high altitude mountaineering, truly. 
Uh, and so, yes, I think she tried to work in her own way to sort of break down those stereotypes. She very much didn't want her gender to be part of the equation and the thing that people talked about first. But of course, oftentimes they did. So it was kind of this funny little dance that she always had to do talking about the fact that she was a woman in this particular sport. Yeah, and it's an interesting dance because still, and, and certainly at the time, um, it was also sort of a selling point or a calling card, if you will. So I understand that dance of, you know, regrettably being judged, but also here's my, uh, you know, here's a big part of my resume is that mm-hmm. I am this strong and I am a woman. So um, it's a tricky thing for sure to walk those those lines in terms of feminism and gender and, and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope that does come across in the book, how tricky Mm -hmm. that can be. One of the interesting things to me about Chris was how she seemed to be unmotivated by, you know, trophies and accolades and things like of that nature. Although she was an 8000 meter, you know, peak bagger, so to speak, she expressed no interest in, you know, doing something like becoming the first woman to do all 14 8000 meter peaks. Um, and she was off in China with Charlie, you know, doing peaks that no one had ever heard of and ex- the, the more exploratory side of uh, alpine climbing. And so, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to just, I think, just share with our, our listeners just what kind of person she was in terms of her humility and, um, and, and just her approach to life and climbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy to speak to that for a few minutes. So I think a lot of it did have to do with the fact that she was from... I don't want to say a small town in the Midwest because that would drive people in Appleton crazy, but kind of a medium-sized, quiet, typical Midwestern town. And her family was kind of very traditional. She had a, a mother who stayed at home and a father who really wanted mom to stay at home. She had three older brothers. And so the first you know, couple of decades of her life, she was really on this path that looked very typical, because that's kind of what she was conditioned, I think, to believe was the right path. And she was planning to go to school to study nursing or teaching. And then at the very last minute, she changed her mind and she ended up going to college to study aerospace engineering. And right out of college, she got a job at Lockheed in Atlanta and was running a team that consisted entirely of men. And so off she went on this path where she was always in this world of um, men. And really, she was truly just following the things that she loved. And I think tried very hard not to think about the fact, again, that she was a woman, which was hard because people were kind of constantly bringing it up. Um, But she was very grounded in who she was and what she wanted. And um, all of those Midwestern values, I think, really served her well through life. And the other thing that really struck me about this book is that it's an interesting look back in time and in, in climbing to a moment where, you know, the 8,000 meter guided expeditions were far more or paid far more attention to um, in the mainstream media. And, and also just in, I think their status in the climbing world was, was higher than it is today. And so it's interesting to look back and, you know, hear stories about, you know, mat- mountain madness and, uh, you know, the, the, the state of guided 8,000 meter peaks kind of in the wake of into thin air. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just kind of reflect on how that's really changed in, um, you know, since, since their deaths. Yeah. It's, 
interesting. It's been kind of an interesting juxtaposition for me to be in the middle of that world today, as I've had to be, because I'm talking to people who are still in that world now in the year 2020, but then diving into what it looked like in the year 2000. And even before that, the late 1990s was kind of the heyday for 8,000 meter peak expeditions. And, you know, the issues now that we're facing in terms of the environmental degradation and the treatment of Sherpas, there are just so many more things now that we're aware of that um, I wouldn't say they weren't aware of at that time, but that just weren't quite as high on the radar screen as actually making that summit and bagging that peak, which was a much bigger deal on some level 20 years ago than it is now. So as you got into this world and got into, fortunately, you know, death sort of surrounds the uh, the 8,000 meter climbing world uh, from the beginning, you know, uh, from the actual very beginning of trying to bag Everest, you know, in, in the uh, 20s. As a journalist and as you, you know, were needing to interview people and talk to rescuers and go to Mountain Madness who had lost their leader uh, years ago, can you talk about the approaches or maybe what you learned about approaching people about um, about talking about the loss of their loved ones and, mm-hmm. and how you sort of did your best to, to, to be respectful, but also get the information that you needed? Right, right. I think in this case, being a non-mountaineer was very valuable because I really was coming at it from a kind of a blank slate. I mean, I didn't I came at it knowing sort of the basic history, but I wanted to really understand the personalities and what drove people to take those risks and then spend time with people understanding their loved ones. So, and because I'm a journalist, I had done a fair amount of research. So, and I was able to spend time really kind of diving into these things with people. So the conversations I had were always really wonderful and oftentimes very cathartic. I think the process of how mountaineers grieve now is very different. And I'd I'd venture to say probably more beneficial now. You know, there's so much research around loss and grieving in that community. Now, 20 years ago, it was very different. So on some level, this whole process and talking with the people who loved those who had been lost, including Scott and uh, Charlie and Christine, was was cathartic for them and for me as well. So on that level, it was quite beautiful because a lot of times there were people who I would speak to who had not really opened up about that loss and what it felt like. But now, 12, 14 years later, we're finally able to. So it was it was beneficial for them and for me, I think. Yeah, and actually, I think that comes through in the book uh, in a way because that, you know, talking about what Andrew started with in terms of this being, you know, a decade or you probably started it about a decade afterwards and now it's almost a decade and a half. You know, this going back and revisiting things that that far in the future, I mean, as opposed to, you know, an actual, you know, newspaper or like CNN was there, you know, in these people's faces as it's happening. Um, It feels like. In a lot of ways, this book is about this, you know, this sort of journey to uh, like a, a, a I, I want to say positive, um, but at least sort of a peaceful uh, ending to to what Chris did in her life, mm-hmm. if you will. 
Yes, as much as it can be, I think it is that. So that was an unexpected joy throughout this process to be able Mm -hmm. to bring these communities together and people, you know, there were people who had lost Chris and Charlie, who had known each other because of Chris and Charlie, who then had not spoken for Mm. 10, 15 years, who I was able to bring together and who are now, you know, having these rekindled friendships and climbing together. And so it's been quite lovely in that regard. You know, climbers have this, um, because a lot of people in our community die, it seems like there's some kind of secret knowledge that we may have as, uh, you know, as a group of people, um, around, you know, something that we all struggle with, we're all afraid of. Um, and I think that there's perhaps this, uh, you know, when you look at someone like Chris from afar, especially not being a climber, there's, there's a sense that maybe there's something heroic about a person who, you know, is so brave in the face of, you know, such grave consequences, um, day to day and who has such direct experience with, um, death herself. And, and so was there, did you feel like that there was, um, for you personally, did you, did you gain something, some of that, did you feel that there was that sense of secret knowledge and do you feel like you were able to impart any of it into your own, uh, approach to how you live day to day and maybe your feelings towards your own mortality? That's a great question. Um, I think, let's see, I can try to answer this and hopefully I'll kind of hit on it a little bit. One of the things that was interesting and intriguing for me was that um, she was just a regular woman who had many fears and many insecurities. And so I think oftentimes when we look at mountaineers at that level, I agree. We think there must be something that they have that the rest of us don't have that allows them to take those risks and to accomplish those incredible things. But I don't believe that's necessarily true. I had access to her journals and so read over her journals, you know, day after day and got deep into her psyche and really got to know her well and understand that she really did have many fears and insecurities, just like the rest of us. She just had a little something extra that allowed her to overcome those fears. She had a great deal of courage that sustained her on all of those expeditions and through all of those highs and lows of the many relationships that she had, which I also talk a lot about in the book. So I think that has been reassuring for me as a human (laughs) to know that what she accomplished is something that I could accomplish possibly if I set my mind to it. Uh, and I hope that that also comes across in the book. And I think I think it is. I'm hearing that resonate with readers, too. They're liking that humanity that's coming across in her, and it's helping them relate to her as um, as a woman and as a human. Yeah, and I think that just touches back onto what we were talking about earlier with um, the the judgmentalness of uh, of of death and um, and you know taking risks and climbing and. Um, you know, it's it's so much of that stems just from a discomfort uh, with our own mortality, and you know, you you impart your fears, you, you place, bl- you blame others for fears that you hold yourself. Mm-hmm. And as you said, getting close to the humanity of it and seeing that there's not, there is no secret knowledge or superpower that you know climbers necessarily have. It's just a maybe a more openness or willingness to to be closer to some of these things that are a little more uncomfortable that we all face. 
Yes. Yes. I love it. That's a great way to state it. So when you were learning about the climbing world and, 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 you know, 8,000 meter climbing and, and high altitude climbing, and then started to learn about Charlie Fowler. And maybe you noticed that, that there are actually different worlds, even within the climbing world. And one of the things that as climbers, we, you know, rail against sometimes is that everybody outside of climbing wants to talk about Everest. Um, when I'm, you know, I don't have any interest in that. So there's like kind of two worlds. And the interesting mm-hmm. thing I, I saw on this is that Charlie, he came from this deep lifestyle rock climbing world and, and sort of entered into Chris's life, uh, you know, uh, well after a lot of her biggest sense uh, on the big mountains. What do you, what do you feel like Charlie's influence on Chris uh, started to be? And uh, I have a follow-up question to that, but, but did you see kind of an influence on, on changing the path of how she looked at climbing uh, once she started hanging out with Charlie? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I mean, it's very clear to me that they influenced each other, really. Um, And Charlie, in -hmm. particular, the way that he impacted her and the trajectory of her climbing career was was obvious. She was kind of on this path to summit all of the world's 8,000 meter peaks. You know, as you know, there are 14 of them. And she summited, I think, her sixth with Charlie in the year 2000. But by that point, they had been together a while, and he had really opened her eyes to unexplored peaks and going places that were very off the grid and how rewarding and fulfilling that could be as opposed to these ginormous expeditions, which take so much effort to um, pull together, which, of course, she still had to do because she was running Mountain Madness. And so her name, at least in that community, was well known enough that people were still paying to go on 8,000 meter peak expeditions with her. So then it became this kind of funny little situation where she'd have to do a couple of those every year uh, as owner of Mountain Madness. And Charlie would also do those as well because that was a good way for him to make money. But their real love was off the grid climbing. And so mm-hmm. in that regard, um, he really did influence her trajectory. Yeah, it's so interesting that like, you know, it becomes your day job, you know, to do these like <laughs> right. these enormous things that that really even, you know, within the climbing community, we're not like just completely, you know, throwing away the idea of how hard a uh, a guided ascent of a climb is for a guide, you know, and, and that's your day job. It's, it's pretty wild <laughs> that it's sort of like, yeah. oh, this thing I have to go do like an adventure of a lifetime for, you know, 99.9% of the world um, yeah. is, is like a somewhere you clock in exactly yeah i remember going over email back and forth between chris and charlie and just archives at mountain madness as they were trying to get sponsors for k2 the two of them Mm -hmm. attempted k2 and it was just driving them bananas that they had to cultivate all these sponsors and do all this work and then all the logistics and on and on and on and they just wanted to be off somewhere far far away from k2 um i I was working as an editor at Rock and Ice Magazine um, when Charlie and Chris went missing. And I recall the uh, just I recall just thinking that there was no question in my mind that they had died. But there was a period of, you know, a month or so where it was uncertain enough. They were just, you know, dubbed missing. Um, And it became this national news story, which was very odd at the time that this is obviously years before the Don Wall and Free Solo and all all of the 
media attention that climbing has received that we now has become part of our community and world. Um, but at that time, just the idea of seeing Charlie Fowler's name on the nightly news was a very jarring sight. What was the, you know, as you um, detailed the, the, the last um, month of their, I guess they had been dead at that point, but mm-hmm. the month after they had died, what was your impression for why that became a, such a big national news story? Well, at the time, there had been another search and rescue effort on Mount Hood that had been maybe two weeks prior to Chris and Charlie's disappearance. And that had involved, you know, tons of search and rescue vehicles. And it was based in the United States, obviously, and lots of media. And it was covered also again and again every night on the national news for about a week. And Chris and Charlie's disappearance kind of came right after that. So I think on one level, that was sort of feeding the appetite for people to have a happy ending because the Mount Hood disaster did not have a happy ending, especially because it was right before Christmas. There were a couple of different things, I think, that played into the fact that it became a big national news story. Speaking of kind of my observation about climbing 8,000 meter peaks being a day job, as a writer, I'm sure you get all sorts of ideas and, and you have work to do that that is work. But it sounds like writing this book became quite a journey for you. And, and, and maybe, you know, a big attitude shift happened after completing the book and, and getting the feedback for it. And that's probably ongoing as well. Do you have interest in continuing to write in the, you know, this vein of, of, of looking at the climbing world or, or are you interested now in maybe delving into another world that you you know can discover mm-hmm. i have loved this world so i would say that i'm now really looking for stories that would fall in the category of kind of adventure journalism outdoor mm-hmm. narratives not necessarily climbing and mountaineering though i'm always open to that um, but i've i've loved this journey and this process of learning about the sport and in particular having a female at the center of this particular story has been really rewarding. So those are the kinds of stories I'm drawn to now. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the run out and, uh, and, you know, actually educating me quite a bit about this world because I, you know, consider myself sort of this climbing expert after having interviewed hundreds of climbers and and been doing it all my life. But my knowledge about 8,000 meter peak climbing is still pretty vague other than the deep deep history of of the early years in the 50s and 60s so i appreciate having sort of gotten me to read this book that that you spent you know just so much loving energy on and uh, i appreciate you coming on the show thank you i'm so glad you enjoyed it the book is edge of the map the mountain life of christine boscoff uh, published by the mountaineers and uh, anywhere in particular that you'd like to direct our our listeners to to pick up the book Yes, absolutely. They can obviously pick up the book online if they'd like, but I much prefer right now if your listeners pick up the book at their local independent bookstore. All right. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, 
facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast. Or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com.